This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Okay, ready? What you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a wheel. I want to know something she needs. I'll think about everyone you need. I'll hold in it. Things are moving real now. I'll have you seen you wanting you. Hey. The tour ratio. Okay, though. The tour ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> You're a phenomenal person. I mean, legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. When I was in high school, I knew a man named Cliff Evans who would go on to become a professional counterfeiter. He got to the end of his time at Columbia University found an extraordinary high-end expensive copier, put a dollar on it, and it came back looking like money. And right then and there, he became a professional counterfeiter and saw exactly the path he needed to follow to make money. Of course, it does not end well for him, but this is the crux of my book, The Ivy League Counterfeiter, which is an original ebook that you can get on scribd.com. S-C-R-I-B-D.com. You can read it there. It's an ebook. There's an audiobook. There's no physical copies, but I like ebooks and the ease of that. You can just read it on your phone. But it's an extraordinary story, the Ivy League counterfeiter of Somebody who went to great schools, but was dying to be in the criminal underworld. To explore this story more fully, I brought in my old friend, Danielle Moody, who's going to interview me about my book, The Ivy League Counterfeiter. Torre. Hi. It's been forever and a day. I know. So excited to be back with you. <laughs> um, the shade. <laughs> So I excited that. I to be back with you. So excited. I'm thrilled even. Um, your new book. I, I I I cannot believe that the Ivy League counterfeiter, your new book, is a true story. <laughs> because it was one of the most like outrageous stories that I think that I have read in quite some time. Thank you. And I kept having to go back and I'm like, This is real. This is re-. like he knew this man. So, Cliff Evans, Ivy League, gets into prep school, is from the quote-unquote hood, has two paths set in front of him in his life. One that he knows, because we will talk about his older brother, one that is a life of crime that leads, as you wrote in the book, two places. It leads to prison or an early death. Right there, there's not a lot of in between there's, that happens. No, there's when not you, a lot of when old you criminals the, just hanging out. Yeah, right. And then the other life, which you would think, or at least America has told us, that when you have an Ivy League education, even if you happen to be black and from the hood, there are lots of opportunities and choices to make money, to make a name, which is what Cliff Evans, your former friend, really wanted. He wanted to make a name. For himself, he wanted to be bigger, and he felt that there was only one way to go. I just want to ask you, before we jump into like the specifics of the book, what compelled you? It's been, I guess, well, close to almost three decades since he has passed. Uh, since well, since the since the story 
came he, together. He passed in 2010. He's pa- okay, he passed in 2010. The story, this happens mostly in 1996. Okay. But, you know, Cliff was somebody that I remembered from high school. He was one of the guys from, from school. Not everybody from your high school you remember 20 years later. There might be some people who you went to high school with who come up to you right now. Mm-hmm. Anyone listening right now and be like, I went to high school with you. You'd be like, I don't remember you. Cliff was not one of those people. He was one of those people that everybody who was around him at that time would remember him. He was charismatic. He was kind of lar- larger than life. He made an impact on everybody he was around. And he was a complicated person. And I had just always had it in the back of my mind like, this is a fantastic story. And I want to tell this story even more deeply. Somebody who found a copier and copied money, photocopied mm-hmm. money. That is not how you do it. Cause I found actual counterfeiters. Mm-hmm. And when I told them his method, they laughed. That's hysterical. That is not how it's done. Found a copier, distributed money all around the city, other cities, and was really going for it. And like, there's a lot of people in his circle in Columbia that I, I was able to meet his Columbia University crew and um, people who knew him, close to him, whatever. They were telling him, you need to stop. And as the summer went on and he kept doing it, they were like, oh, this isn't a small little hobby for you. You're like mm-hmm. trying to make a thing out of this. Like, you need to stop. And people kept telling him, you need to stop. And he like, no. And they said he was fearless. And in a way, we sort of prize and celebrate people who seem fearless. But at a certain point, fear is valuable because it will keep you from driving off the ledge, right? Yes. In, in any, any number of ways. And he was clearly heading toward driving off the ledge, but he had no fear and he kept on going. Um, as the summer went on, of summer of counterfeiting, People are falling away like, I don't want to be near you. I don't want to work in your organization. I don't want to be your friend right now because lightning is about to strike. I don't want to be standing next to you when it happens. And there was there was a person who was a friend who was not in the operation who talks about going to see him on the day that he got arrested. Not, no, I'm, I'm going to see my friend mm-hmm. in the apartment where he's lived for a couple of years not knowing what's going on. He gets to the apartment and he's walking up the stairs. This is in Harlem. And he sees like all these people in the hallway, which is weird. And then he sees there all these black boots. And by the time he gets a little closer up and realizes it's a bunch of, 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 of law enforcement, he's like, well, it's too late to turn around now. So I have to walk through this little operation where all these cops or whatever are in the hallway Cliff and and his other lieutenant were in the hallway in handcuffs about to be brought down. He sees his friends and he human nature you just look at your friends and you want to express <laughs> something to them. Mm. But he also knows if I am too expressive to them then the police will think I'm with them and I will go downtown with them. So it's sort of like a quick look and then look away keep walking to escape that whole situation. He did get away from them, jumps in the elevator, goes downstairs, saw them being marched out by police and was like, oh my God, oh my God, he's going down. But it's just such a crazy story for me, not just Cliff dying to be part of the criminal underworld by any means necessary, um, but also like what happens in his family. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I want to go to the beginning because there is there are so many characters in this story. There are so many people that are involved in Cliff's life. But one of the characters that I found most interesting was your prep school. Mm, interesting. And the your prep school, Milton. Milton Academy. Milton yeah. Academy is, you know, what you would presume a prep school to be. Yep. Largely filled with very white, very affluent kids from named families. Mm -hmm. Um, And notably, the kids of color, the black kids that are there, 
not all, but some, like him, were there on scholarships, mm-hmm. right? Because they were smart mm-hmm. enough to get in. And the way that you describe this school and the academy and the kids there and this, like, Cliff is, he's hes with this group but not with them. Mm. It's like the black kids are there but not really there, right? They're, they're being exposed. You all are being exposed to super wealth, ultra wealth, sure. right? Um, that you even, if you are successful and do all of the right things, you may never acquire sure. because you weren't born into that kind of generational wealth. And so I just wanted you to talk a bit about he shows up and other kids in his situation coming from his community, the south side of Chicago, may have, by no fault of their own, try and separated themselves from the community that they came from. Mm. Right? Try and separate themselves from the brother that is incarcerated at the time Um he doesn't, and you and you make note of that. Yeah, yeah. Cliff is sent to boarding school because people around him notice he's smart, but also his family is breaking apart. His brother, who's a bank robber, has been arrested. He's going to go away for many years. His parents' relationship is breaking up. He, everybody around him sees he needs something new. 12 years old, he leaves Chicago to go to Massachusetts to board a Milton Academy, and it wasn't easy for him. At the, his full ride, freshman year, his grades are so bad they hold him back, which is unusual at Milton. They don't like to hold people back that much. The, so the school believed in him so much that even though he basically flunked his ninth grade year on a full ride, they gave him another chance to mm-hmm. do the ninth grade. This time he does much better. He approaches Milton saying... I want to make sure everybody knows I'm a tough guy. I'm from the streets of Chicago. I've seen stuff. I've done stuff. I remember the first couple of years, people were doubtful and skeptical that what he said was true. Mm-hmm. The la- the later years at Milton, people started to more believe maybe he is telling the truth. His Columbia group, they had no question that he was telling the truth. But he always wanted you to know, I'm a tough guy. I'm from the hood. I'm from the streets. Other people, yeah, you know, came to Milton and wanted to sort of distance themselves from that. But, you know, the 80s, because he enters Milton, I believe it was 86. Mm -hmm. Um, The 80s was a tricky time to be a black person in these private schools. I think there were very, very, very few of us in these sort of private schools in the 70s, right? Almost none in the 60s, right? Right. In the, by the 80s, the, 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 the principle of affirmative action is really in full swing in America, and there's an understanding in these institutions that we have to bring some black people in. And while I was going to the school, they started to do that. They started to notice the retention rates were very low. Students were coming in and leaving. Um, Michael Eric Dyson talks about that in his life, that he got into a great a Detroit private school. There was some racism. There was some stress. There was some culture clashes, and he ended up having to leave. And a lot of people had that story. Mm. Uh, Milton and some other schools start to do things to increase retention, right? So, like, there's a an orientation for two weeks before orienting the kids how to get along at Milton. But there's a huge culture clash, and there's a sense that you know, we should be here because the institution should be educating, you know, poorer people as well. Um, But there's a difficulty in getting along. And one of the stories that I talk about um, has stuck with me for a long time. Uh, A a student named Randall Dunn, who went on to become the principal of a high-end Chicago private school. Um, He was the first black student to ever be elected senior class president, Mm. 200 plus year history of Milton, Mm -hmm. super great grades, three sport varsity athlete, teachers loved him, students loved him. So the recommendations are off the charts. The high school resume is insane. He gets into Brown and somebody tells him to his face, you only got in because of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And I point out in the book, like, well, that white student 
was correct, just not in the way that he meant it. He meant it to take away you only get, affirmative action got you in. Well, without affirmative action, the school may not have considered him at, at all. all. Right. But this was the sort of imposter syndrome note that could be thrown and was thrown mm -hmm. at black people. And I remember hearing Randall come into uh, an all-boys assembly when I was in eighth grade and tell the story about, like, somebody said such and such to me, and that was wrong. And feeling like, well, shit, Randall's the most uh, accomplished black student mm -hmm. in the school. And he was the most accomplished black student that I saw my entire years at Milton. And I was like... If they think that about him, right. then surely they think that about all of us. Um, I talked to another student who came from the hood, uh, comes to Milton, and uh, one of the major teachers was like, I'm going to keep my eye on you. There was another student like you who we caught stealing. You do one little thing. I'm going to send you back home. Now, this is, this is the conversation to a ninth grader who has always lived in one environment and now is in an entirely different environment. So the those these sort of moments of racism and the sort of expectation that you are not the same as us was rife. And I don't want to just put it on Milton. I think that this happened at a lot of places. Oh, of course, right. But this is part of what Cliff was coming into, this world that looked at him like, you're not really fully belonging here. You're here because of affirmative action. We're tolerating your presence. But at the same time, he learned uh, he learned the sort of intellectual superiority that I think a lot of people gain if you go to these sort of schools, Milton, Andover, Exeter, Spence, what have you. They don't tell you overtly, but you sort of learn to think, well, we must be among the smartest people in the world. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We went to Andover, we went to right. Exeter, we went to Milton, Choate, whatever. And it takes some unlearning after you leave the school. And, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of us have talked about, like, we have to sort of deconstruct some of that. But I do think that Cliff held on to that and felt like he's the smartest person in the room. And especially when he goes into an underworld situation, I'm definitely the smartest person in the room. So I can outthink all of you guys and win at this game. But with counterfeiting... You can't win. You can only win for a certain period of time. Right. Because the whole idea of counterfeiting is that people won't eventually figure out where the fake money is coming from. Yes. Right. So which means that you're moving around to move money all over the place. I mean, to me, as I was listening, it sounded exhausting. It's like counterfeiting it sounded it exhausting as hell. No, you're constantly spending money on small things that you don't really want because you got to keep breaking your fake money to get real money, but you mm -hmm. got to do that by buying a hat, a drink, a little sweater, this or that. You don't want to buy anything too expensive because then you're eating up your profits. But you can't buy anything. You can't buy a house. And you, and you don't want to buy anything too expensive because the idea is that then you're getting into places where people are actually looking at the money. One of the things you know, that was mentioned in the book is that as Cliff is trying to, I guess, train his lieutenants, right, in how to move this money, he's saying, well, go to places that are dark where they're really busy so they're not paying attention to what's yep. coming in and what's going out. Um, and so we will move along to the book <laughs> where they decide to $900 at a bank. Like it just, it, I screamed and I was just like, you dummy. Like you somebody, don't, you don't. Somebody deposits money into an ATM, and that's where the government really started to figure out um, who they were. See, one of the things they didn't realize, right? The, the the problem was there from the beginning. This high end copier that Cliff discovered on the campus of Columbia University, mm -hmm. very expensive copier. He, Puts a dollar bill on it. It comes back perfectly. He told me he immediately saw exactly what he needed to do to make this a business. That copier 
was putting a code yep. on every piece of paper it made that you or I couldn't see, but law enforcement could pull out their little microscope and go, oh, mm-hmm. now he, the apartment that Cliff lived in, he called the chop zone where they chopped up the money. Mm-hmm. So I imagine the copier was putting a code on a piece of paper and he is unknowingly copying, let's say six bills at once probably. So not every bill had the code. So the police are sort of getting this, they're, they're seeing the Secret Service is seeing these uh, bills, but some of them don't have a code, right? But some of them do. So they don't even, Cliff doesn't even realize which bills he's handing out that are going to sink him and which are yeah. not. Um, but yeah, you, they, one of the actual professional counterfeiters I found compared it to this amazing Richard Pryor movie from the eighties, Brewster's millions. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen this? You heard about these? You know, I would not remember. Okay. Cause that was before you were born. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're doing that. Yeah, we're doing that. Um, Richard Pryor is given, let's I forget the scale, but like at the time it was like gigantic numbers. He's mm-hmm. given like. I think it was like $10 million that he had to spend within like a month or something like that. And if he accomplished that, then he would be given $100 million, like far, far more. But he had to have nothing to show for it at the end of the spending period. So you can't buy anything. So he's just constantly buying stuff. So like one thing, he he has a room designed and the designer buys, you know, all the fabrics and all the furniture. And he walks in and he goes... I don't know, change it. So then the designer has to completely redesign the room. So now I've just wasted, you know, what, $20,000 on, like, designing a room, your time, but just do it again. He just keeps doing that over and over again. So he just what, he's just spending money to get nothing. Right. And, and it is so numbing. I think we all know the value and the thrill of retail therapy, but at a certain point that would become, mm-hmm. there would be diminished returns. You'd be like, just buying more crap like all the yeah. time. It's exhausting. And but he's but you know, can't go back to the same place twice. So we're spreading in New York and then we're going to Jersey, then we're going to Philly, then we're going to let's just just to kind of flood the zone. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick. Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. 
Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. What is so compelling is that he's addicted Mm. to the hustler life. Mm -hmm. Like he is addicted to this caricature of himself that he's created in his head. Mm -hmm. And you refer to him in the book, you say, you know, he's smart. He's a smart guy. He he got great grades. He goes from Milton Academy, gets into Columbia University. I mean, these, this is Ivy after Ivy. And so I'm just, you know, you have interviewed for this book his friends, his family. Talk to him. Talk to him. What is it? Like, what was it about street life, about the underworld that would compel somebody with such opportunity that was in front of you to be like, nah, I want to live. It's like I'm pointing to a mansion and he's like, nah, I want to live in the gutter. Like, I don't like, what is it? He talked about seeing the hustlers as a young person and when he was young and seeing the sense of power and freedom that they seem to have. I have money without, compromising without sacrificing without giving away any of my dignity or my like I do what I want to do that image is extremely attractive to Mm. a lot of people Mm -hmm. most of us either have a fear that doesn't allow us to go there or we don't know how to get into that world Mm -hmm. the people who don't fall into those two buckets can go into that way. You know, I can't blame him. You know, there was a point at which he was one of the biggest weed salesmen at Columbia. And he's thinking about, should I get a job, a regular job? Now, the regular job, you're making, what, $40,000. you got to show up when the boss says. you got to stay until the boss says. you got to talk, take the boss's shit while you're there, blah, blah, blah. Or I could make, like, way more than that selling weed on my own. Right. Like, why, why would I make that? Because eventually you'll cap out. Like, ev- like eventually, right? Like, that, I mean, that's, well, that's see, what we're told. See, marijuana, you can, you can survive that game. You can sell marijuana privately, like, underground, and, and get out. You can do that. I know a bunch of people who were, I, they sold marijuana, they dipped out without going, right? Like that you can get away with. Counterfeiting. Mm-mm. But the interesting thing about counterfeiting, it's very important to the government to stop counterfeiting, mm-hmm. right? We can't have fake money rolling around the economy, No, because right? I'd go to Kinko's every day if that, if that were going to be the case. we don't want the public to think there's a lot of fake money sloshing around because even worse than individuals doing counterfeiting would be the a significant portion of the American uh, public and the global public thinking that the American dollar is not to be trusted because mm-hmm. there's a if people thought there's a one in four chance that your 20 is fake the American economy could collapse or could right. have a significant problem so I think when we see you know like a drug bust the government gets very proud of itself and they Display all the money and guns and cocaine on the table. Look, we stopped a $10 million drug. When it's when it's counterfeiting, they want to be like, we stopped it. No big deal. Nothing to see here. They don't want you thinking there's tons of fake money. You know, one of the guys from the Secret Service was like, the amount of counterfeit money in the American economy is like less than 1%. Mm-hmm. Professional counterfeiter was like, no, I think it's more like 3 4 5%. That's a little bit higher. If the average American agreed with that person, we would have a significant problem. So the government needs to stop counterfeiting without us realizing that counterfeiting is as big as a problem as it is. You know, so here's Cliff. He is counterfeiting away. He is now going to start sending stacks of money to his brother. He sent $13,000 to his older brother. Fascinating in and of itself. But so Cliff's older brother. Let's talk about him, right? Joe. Joe Solomon. Joe Solomon is 
passed away in, about a year ago. In Cliff's eyes, he's the man. He's 14 years older than Cliff. He he must have seemed, I mean, you know, a 14-year-old, a, a brother who's 14 years older than you would surely seem extremely cool, right, mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're a young person. Um, and clearly Joe loved him and seemed like, it seemed like Joe was perhaps the biggest person in his life beside his mother. So, you know, he's listening to Joe. He's paying attention to Joe. But Joe, Joe is the one who tells Cliff how to live, live the, life. the street life and what to do. And his big message, don't tell on other people. Mm. And yet Joe did that in 1985 and the mm-hmm. bank robbery that sent him away for many years. And then he does it again. So what I find fascinating here is that while Cliff heads to Milton where you meet him, his brother is in prison serving Mm -hmm. over a decade, right? Like he was sentenced to over a decade for a bank robbery. And yet he still holds him. And I'm not saying, look, everybody has family members that you love, but you know have done dirt, have done bad shit, but you're like, I love them. But it's not just a love, it's an admiration that he has for him. So when he gets out, you know, they're, 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 I guess, you know, back together again. He sends him $13,000, 13000 fake ass dollars to Chicago to flood essentially that zone. Well, Joe sells that to one person for $1,000. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Joe, see, the thing with Joe... He gets out in 95, and in 96, when Cliff is doing his thing, it starts really in May, June of 96, goes through summer, fall, into the winter. As that period is happening, Joe's heroin addiction is coming back stronger and stronger, mm-hmm. and he's in the grip of this addiction, and he starts to feel like, I gotta, you know, I, I gotta feed the beast. He's losing to his addiction. And so he doesn't make a plan. He just says, I need some money. How am I going to get some money? He pulls up in front of a bank. He wasn't really planning. He just sort of like scrawled a note that was illegible. The teller, like, I cannot read the note. He has a bag. He does not have a gun. But he goes up to the teller with his hand in the bag. Mm -hmm. And it's like, give me some money. Uh, and, you know, I would not want to have to shoot you. With the gun I don't have. The teller gives him, like, one or $2,000. A week later, I mean, the MO is exactly the same. A week later, he goes to a different branch, about the same time of day, bag, note, give me some money, walks out again. with. So five times he walks in it once a week from, all, from beginning late August going through, uh, beginning September, going through October. He walks into a bank, says, give me some money. They give him money. He walks out. I didn't realize that you could just do that. I I thought that there may have been other hurdles. (laughs) I would have the security guard, anything that that would happen. That he's he's walking out with two, three, four thousand dollars. Five times he successfully robs a bank without a gun, Mm. without an accomplice. The sixth time... He is tackled by the security guard, and the FBI takes him away. And now they're aware of all these robberies. And because he made the tellers think that he had a gun and could and would shoot them, he is up for attempted murder. Even though he didn't have a gun and didn't have a way of actually killing them, he made them think that he did so we can charge you with attempted murder. Mm. Because the victim thought... Because black thought is dangerous. That's all I mean. You had to say that. You had to get that. (laughs) So he's talking to the FBI, and he's facing 120 years. Jesus. And the only way to mitigate a sentence like that is to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And you can't just cooperate regarding the crime that we're talking about. You have to talk about every criminal conspiracy you know about in the world. Whether or not you are specifically. And we know that they knew about the $13,000 because they made him testify against the man 
he sold the money to. I, I can imagine if you can see this in the theater of your mind. Mm-hmm. There's Joe Solomon facing 120 years talking to FBI agents and eventually saying them saying, "So where'd you get thirteen thousand dollars from?" It's a lot of that's a lot of fake money. Mm-hmm. You didn't make it. We looked in your apartment. You don't yeah, have it. Like, where, yep. Where'd you get it from? And he ha- and he feels forced to say. I got it from my brother. The I, I imagine the, the the just visualizing that moment, the jaw has to drop at you told on your little brother, right, who looks up to you so much that he bent his life course to be more like you, who loves you to death, and you told on him. After telling him and teaching him that the hustler's code is, what don't you do? I mean, you don't snitch. You know, at first, because I realized this from reading all of their paperwork, all mm-hmm. their court transcript stuff, which took a while to get, interestingly, because um, some of these, fi- all, every time anybody goes to court, that it's all, all that is public information. You can go and get the do- the documents and the data of what happened in any trial. But a lot of the stuff was locked away because of COVID. They sent a lot of files to, to warehouses where it's like, well, we can't get to it. And, to, and we were coming out of COVID as I'm doing this research. So finally, the service that I was using was like, okay, now we can actually go get the documents. And, you know, at first I thought like, wow, Cliff's and Joe's mother, like poor woman, her one brother is re her one son is rearrested November 1st, 1996, and her baby is arrested November 26th, 1996. My God. I mean, this woman, she must be just heartbroken that what a coincidence that they both. And then a little voice is like, maybe it wasn't a coincidence. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence. Because they're so close. Maybe it's not a coincidence. Like, well, yeah. and I start reading through, and that $13,000. He testifies against the man he sold it to. And then at Cliff's sentencing hearing, he testifies. Because a whole other issue comes up. And the prosecutor, and at first I didn't understand. The prosecutor asked him, like, did you send $13,000 to your brother? And he says, yes. And that's the end of that line of questioning. And I was like, why did she ask him that? She wanted to put that on the record. But that's the connection. They knew that he sent the money to. So, of course, they're like, you got to. So he helps bring his brother down. It's just so. That part of the story to me is just so sad, right? Because, again, you would think Ivy League educated. You would know better. You would know who to trust, who not to trust. You can love your brother but not admire him. You can think to yourself, oh, he snitched on the last people that knew about the bank robbery. Maybe I don't send him $13,000 of counterfeit money to, you know, at the potential that, oh, he could do to me what he has done to other people. He wasn't really taking the precautions that you would have thought. Well, because he had no fear. Because he had no fear. Because he had no fear. Because he had no fear, yeah. To that point, November 25th, the day before he's arrested, Cliff is not in the apartment but two or three other guys are in the apartment. 7 p.m., knock on the door. Con Edison is here to check the meter in your apartment and make sure everything is okay. And they're like, an unannounced, unplanned, unasked for... After work hours? Yeah, 7, 7 p.m.? Visit from Con Edison? Get the fuck out of here. You're not Con Edison. They were right. It was not Con Edison. They go to Cliff. You are hot. You need to stop. You need to run. You need to, like, because they are on you. They were just here trying to figure out what's going on. Need to be out. And he was like, nah, it's cool. We got this. I got this. You're being paranoid. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think in this initial run that he wanted to go to prison, that prison was going to give him the street cred, the notoriety, all of the things that he had held so dear, Mm. this hustler life that he could officially be a part of the club Right. But a part of, you know, the folklore on the streets as the major counterfeiter. And that because why else wouldn't you run? I I don't think he wanted to get caught. I don't think anybody really wants to get caught. But I do think that that he wanted to be big shit in the street. He wanted everyone to know, like, I'm the man. Didn't want to get caught, but saw long-term the value of if I get arrested and I don't say anything, then I'm, and I do my bid quietly, then I've earned, that's how you really earn stripes in that world. Mm. So he gets arrested. And what I find the most compelling again is the sentencing process. Mm. And the fact is, here he is. He gets what people need to get, I guess, character witnesses to write on his behalf. He's a good guy. This is his first, you know, foray into the criminal life. It wasn't. Give, <laughs> give him a break. You know, all of these things. And it seemed from the book that even the judge seemed to like him. The judge seems to feel bad for him. And to, I mean, the judge says some funky things in terms of, you know, uh, uh, you know, you should thank your lucky stars right. that I'm only going to sentence you to this. And like, so this very entitled tone that I don't really appreciate. But the judge does seem to see like, and the prosecutor also said like, it didn't have to be this way for you. You had options, right? And like, why did you do this when you had options? Now. Look, some of some of that question may be in this other part of the story. When Cliff before when so after one of his lieutenants puts money in an ATM, mm-hmm. the Secret Service arrests him. He immediately gives a statement and he says, "Well, that guy, Teddy, he's the number two guy." Mm-hmm. So they he sets him up. He gets arrested. He gives a statement. Then they are you go in and talk to Cliff and set him up. So he walks in and gives Cliff ten thousand fake dollars. So now you're like completely implicated and done. And he says to Cliff, "I don't want to do this anymore." And Cliff said, "Well, we can't quit just yet because I got a big score coming. We got a big deal that we're about mm-hmm. to do, and I need your help making the money. We got to make like hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars for this client." Moments later, the Secret Service breaks in the door. 
and arrest him. There's fake money, real money, all kinds of things in the apartment. They're going to take him down. Now he tells the law enforcement that it was actually a $250,000 deal. So the number just went, the number of the deal just went up. Right. Why? I have no idea, right? I'm talking to the police. I am minimizing what I did. But he's saying, no, no, it was even bigger. So now, so the amount of money that you conspired to make directly relates to your the sentencing. sentence you get. Yes. How long, right? If, so if you make 120, for example, let's say you're facing a day, you make 100,000, you're, fa- you're looking at three years, right? Mm-hmm. You make a million, you're looking at 20 years, like whatever. So there's tremendous conversation at the sentencing hearing of how much did he make? And the government is saying, well, he said he was conspiring to make $250,000. And his lawyer's like, well, the government has no proof of that. So because through this argument, Cliff ends up on uh, the witness stand, mm-hmm. right? Interviewed by, or tested, deposed, but interviewed by both of, the, both of the attorneys. And he says, there's nobody in the world who would have bought six figures of the stuff? I never knew anybody who's. Willing. So you're like so, but you're like so. Either you lied to the CIA to the Secret Service, right? Or you're lying in this courtroom, or both. It is my opinion that he was telling the truth in the courtroom. There's no opportunity to sell a six-figure amount of counterfeit money in one fell swoop that he did not have anybody who he could do that with. That said, he was meeting with members of the Eastern European mafia as Mm -mm. he toward the end, as he's like going upward in the underworld trajectory and like making accomplishments and getting more and more trusted. He's starting to meet people in the mafia um, who can help to talking about, they didn't actually do anything, but talking about how we can all go even further upward. Or downward. So Cliff is arguing, I didn't, uh, that was all just to get this guy to continue to do what I needed him to do. The judge is like, I think you just perjured yourself. He did not, in my belief, but the judge believes he did. And the judge is like, I could sentence you to more time for Be- perjuring yourself. Right. On top of your counterfeiting time. But he doesn't. Right. Which is shocking to me. because, And the, the reason why it's shocking is because you know that people who end up in those courtrooms in front of white judges, whether they have done the crime or not, usually the book is thrown at them. Usually you'll hear from them two, three decades so the idea, later. So the idea that this judge is just like, I could get you for perjury, but I won't because I have the power to either pull the trigger either way. He doesn't impose a fine? No. So he gets 15 months. Yeah. Serves 12. Federal I'm reading this and I'm saying he's going to get out in a year. He's going to change his life. He tries. He tries. He says, if I return to New York, I know all the criminal underworld stuff there, I'm going to go to Chicago, right? Now, now, let me go back just one moment, right? Because as we said, his brother talked to mm-hmm. mitigate his situation, right? Mm-hmm. To mitigate his potential time in prison. Cliff had several people he worked with. He had 10 to 15 people who were basically like low-level runners. Like, come by on Saturday. I give you a 1,000 fake dollars. You got to go out during the week and spend it and come back the next Saturday with a few hundred real dollars and then cut that. So these people were just working for him. Some of them went to Columbia. Some of them did not. Uh, He also knew most of the major underworld figures in New York City. All the Feds magazine type people, Mm -hmm. he's like able to hang out with all of them, had at least met with almost all of them. So when he was arrested, there was a lot of people who were afraid of like, is he going to say something? Is he going to mention my name? 
So there was a lot of people walking on eggshells. First of all, the the Columbia people are like, is he going to ruin my life right. to save his own? But then when you talk about the underworld folks, these are not the sort of people who wait around to see if you have said something. No, they'll go shoot your and wife, ask questions later. your mother, yeah. whatever, just to remind you of like we're out mm-hmm. here. We know where you what you care about. We can get to you. So there was a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety in a lot of people of like, what is he going to say? Is he going to say anything? Didn't say anything. Yeah. If you look at his paperwork, his the his two lieutenants talked about each other and him. He only talks about what he did. He does not shed, shed any light on what anyone else did. He held to his code. He did. And you know there was tremendous pressure on him to talk, but he held to the street code that he was taught, Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't to him. Now, he comes out. Mm -hmm. A year, which seems like, again, a light sentence for having run a counterfeiting scheme for a while. A solid six months. A solid six months of funneling lots of fake money out into the universe in multiple cities yes. across the country. Yes. So he gets out in a year. That when after he got out, I went to Chicago. We sat on his mother's stoop um, and spent a whole day, many many hours, just talking about what happened, why, what he did, how. Um, it was really really interesting and powerful to have that time just sitting and talking with him. Um, the, the main thing I remember, his mother saying that his prep school, Milton, made him want too much too soon. He saw mm. the wealth that these people had and wanted it for himself and didn't want to take the long, slow road of working up to it. He's like, I want it now. And that's why I think, you know, that the school, the Ivy League is part of it because while it gives kids who would not normally have an opportunity, an avenue, a path out, right, of cyclical violence, poverty, all of these things, it also places them in a world that they can look at but can't really touch, that they can – be, you know, next to, but not really a part of. Look, I mean, you know, look, I, I know a lot of people who went from the hood to Milton and similar schools and are extraordinary, productive people who would never do anything like that and have become doctors, lawyers, TV producers, any sort of amazing. So, I mean, like 99% of these people have led have had an amazing life path, uh, largely facilitated by going to an amazing school that maybe they and their family didn't even know existed before they started trying to apply there. But there is a literature of the small group of people who went through this, this prep school experience and still went the wrong path. And, um, Tragically, he's part of that, and part of what you're driving toward is after he got out of prison, he went back into the life. I mean, he went into a different life, but it was still the criminal life. So he moves from counterfeiting, doesn't go back to it. Instead, he goes into prostitution light or managing strippers, whatever it is that you— If you had a mansion— or access to a mansion, mm-hmm. he could show up with 20 gorgeous girls who would dance, make the party more fun. And, you know, if you could talk to the girls and you had enough money, then more things could happen. And so he's managing the girls, the women in these sex worker he's opportunities. He's, pi- it's he's pimpish. pimpish. He's pimpish. He's pimpish. I mean, like, look, I, I, you know, I bet some people would say, you know, you don't need to be violent to be a pimp. So, I mean, like, you're pimping. Yeah. So he's there, you know, and again, this is still 
dangerous. Oh, of course. You're dealing with people. There, You're dealing with all different types of people. You talk about one party, there's guys with guns. Like, these are, these are gangsters yeah. in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, why? Why, Cliff? Why? He was not ever going to be a nine-to-five guy. He was never going to fit into a normal societal path of like, you know, clock in and clock. That's just, he could just never, it just wasn't, he just, that wasn't. And, you know, if, if he could have done something above ground and entrepreneurial, that would have been great for him. Right. But he remained so attracted to the fast money, the power, the speed, the adrenaline of the underworld. And after a while, the mobile strip club sort of situation becomes a, a brick and mortar a, shop. A brick and mortar shop. <laughs> I got a I got a club in the hood hood of Chicago where shit is going down. And so Cliff eventually gets killed. He got murdered in his nightclub. Mm -hmm. Somebody who was angry about something to do with one of the women came into the club and shot him. And he dies in a car at 3.37 in the morning in Chicago racing to the hospital. Doesn't make it to the hospital. 38. Super young. What do you think, like, when he finally does die? I mean, because, again, we started off by saying there's only two paths that really happen when you are attracted to the streets. You're in prison, which he experienced, and frankly got a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Or you get killed. Yeah. And he had still these friends that were around him, his family. After he passes... What do they think? How do they feel? I mean, you know, the best I can tell you is that there's tremendous sadness. Because um, people people saw him as a bit of a tragic story. Mm-hmm. They liked him. They also understood that he could be difficult. It was not unusual to spend a night with him and part of the night be like, oh, my God, you're so funny. You're so fun. And then, oh, my God, you're so annoying. And, oh, my God, why are you going out in the parking lot to f- have a fist fight with one of the other people here? Like, what? is that guy that mm-hmm. might punch somebody at the party in the face. And, you know, there's uh, so, you know, he, he was a person who was really smart, had a lot of energy was a visionary, was a leader, but was all and was charismatic, but was also fearless in a way that led him astray mm-hmm. and led him way off the path. Um, and it's 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 sad, you know. It, it, it's a life that could have been lived in an entirely different way, right? And. Um, you know, it's 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 too bad that his desire for power and speed and adrenaline and to be part of this underworld overcame whatever good judgment there was in there. Because he's like, you know, when I saw the opportunities, the academy in me went silent. Mm-hmm. And I think it did and it didn't. I mean, surely, you know, we all had ethics class. Um, you know, where we talked about what's right and wrong. And, you know, we talked about what's right and wrong at Milton all the time. I think he was aware of what he was doing. But, you know, also he talked about with counterfeiting, you don't, he he felt like you're getting over on somebody. It's It didn't feel like them thumbing like a, his nose at, at, the the economy, system, at the system, at the system, at the, at the like he, you know, we, we all nowadays, 
recognize the evil and the greed associated with capitalism. Yes. You hear it more now in mainstream probably than you than you have, yes, right? Yes, yes. Uh, the greed is good era of the Gordon Geckos of oh the 80s God. and oh Wall Street and coming in and wanting that fast, rich life. But, you know, you have... It, it, it's like, is he a cautionary tale? Oh, my God. Is he, is he, but you're, in a way, by writing about him, you've given him the notoriety that, a part of the notoriety that he wanted. Sure, I guess. I mean, he said that he wanted to be written about in Rolling Stone, and this is part of why he was like, you know, the average job is not for me. I got to do something different. You know, I mean, like, I really liked him yeah you know i felt like i knew him pretty well um you know you feel bad for somebody who is led astray basically by what he sees in the world mm -hmm. and you know so much especially so much for us is is what we see we believe we can do what we see right especially as young people like do you you see these professions among the adults around you gravitate toward those. You don't usually gravitate toward things you don't see, that mm. you don't know is a possibility. And he saw the hustlers. They clearly stood out in that world. And he wanted to be one of them. I mean, like one thing that we haven't talked about, his father was a cop. Yes. So he was like, I, so he took that to be like, I know my way around the streets because my dad was a cop and my brother was a criminal. But he can't fall into the category of because I didn't see it, I couldn't be it because he did see other black models. He wasn't the only kid at Milton that looked no. like him or was or was from where he was from. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's well, we like, had, you know, one thing we had, there was, when he was there, there was maybe one black teacher the entire time that he was there, maybe two. Two, maybe two. I'm now thinking maybe two. And one of them was an art teacher, which is not to denigrate that, but to say that we are expected to be artful, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, we are mm -hmm. expected to be good when it comes to making art and being in culture. But in math, in science, in these other disciplines, yeah. there was one person that I'm recalling who is black. So, so there weren't really, you know, now a lot of these schools make sure there is a black, brown, Asian people in administration, in teaching. So students are not, not diversity is not just put a bunch of black and brown. No, it's creating Asian this, students. the, the infrastructure be, and the scaffolding around it. Right. Yes. Yeah. There has to be the leadership as well. So mm -hmm. the students see black and brown and Asian people in leadership. Right. We, they weren't thinking about things that deep. Yeah. At that point in history. We were thinking, but they didn't. I don't think they realized these students also need black people in leadership around them. Um, we didn't, you know. Was there, you know, was there ever a moment as you're writing this and you're doing all of these interviews and you're collecting this information that you're like, at this moment he could have gone the other way to get out of all to this? get out of it like that that he, like he, this was the pinnacle moment because he wasn't he wasn't he, trying to get out because you said let astray and i'm like he let himself he let himself absolutely he let himself i mean he you know he 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 was enamored with the vision of the hustler and he followed that um he's steadfast at doing this throughout the time that he's doing this at the beginning there's people around him who were like, okay, this is a crazy way of making money. Cliff's always got an idea. He's always running a hustle, a scam. Like, cool. And as time goes on, people are like, oh, you're still doing that? Shouldn't mm. you stop doing that? And as time goes on, more and more people are like, yo, you need to stop doing that. And people are kind of yelling it at him like, you need to stop doing that. You are like barreling down the wrong path. And people start removing themselves from his presence as like, I don't want to be around you when it goes down because it's inevitable. Mm. And even still, and you know, there's this, there's this other detail as well, because he was cool with the other criminal gangs around Harlem. Mm -hmm. So he knew that everybody in the hood 
knew that he was a counterfeiter. And they would know a counterfeiter can't put money in the bank. So there must be a bunch of real and fake money in his apartment. So he knew if they figure out where I live, they might burst in and rob me. Yeah. And kill me. So as as the as the crime is coming to an end, unbeknownst to him, his level of anxiety is going up because he's like, somebody from the street might break in here and rob us any day. So he was thankful. That was what he wrote. He when was he, thankful when he realized it was the cops. When the cops come in, he doesn't know it's the cops. Right. So he rushes at them. They tackle him and get him down on the ground. And when he realizes, oh, it's the cops, he thinks, thank God it's the cops. Because if it had been the street, I'd be dead. Right. I, you know, he was like, I don't know how long I'm going to go to prison for, but I know I can handle prison. He was confident that he could handle prison. So he's like, okay, let's do it. Let's go. That is a confidence I do not have. <laughs> <laughs> I am confident that you could not handle prison. I'm confident you could handle I prison. I could handle it at all. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the least. Oh, my God. I, you know, um, he was an extraordinary person. Yeah. And, you know, he chose, actively chose this crazy life path for himself. You know, it's almost like, you know, you, you show, you create this character and you show them a path. Just open a little door. You know, that copier makes perfect copies mm. of anything. Really? I'll be the judge of that. He puts down a dollar and it comes back perfectly. And after that, he's just off to the races. In that one moment, he becomes a professional counterfeiter in his mind and in his spirit. He sits there that first night and makes $10,000 and he never looks back. And it's it's... It's sad to see the up and down and up and down of this life and how the world constantly gave him chances. And he just knocked them away. I mean, that to me is the extraordinary end of this story is that too many people, particularly black people, particularly black men, are not given a myriad of chances. And so a part of me is like, fascinating character, but also wanting to shake the shit out of him. Like you just batted away chances and opportunities to live an entirely, to live a, but to also to live an entirely different life. They told him, they told him he can't say that he didn't hear you need to stop. They told him. Thank you so much for listening to this great interview. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.